Welcome back to Claude Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. I'm David Airdrie, Executive Director of Thrombosis Canada. I'm Jamil Abdul-Rabin, Hematologist at Toronto General Hospital. And we're here to provide you with updates on diagnosis and management of thrombosis, featuring interviews with authors of recent research publications and highlights of education programs from Thrombosis Canada. We hope that you find this program interesting and informative. In this episode, we'll be discussing a recent publication from Thrombosis Research entitled Evaluation of Definitions for Oral Anticoagulant Associated Major Bleeding, a Population-Based Cohort Study, co-authored by Yan Zhu, Tara Gomez, Philip Wells, Priscilla Paquino, Anna Johnson, and Michelle Schulzberg. We are joined today by one of the authors, Dr. Yan Zhu. Yan Zhu is a subspecialty fellow in adult thrombosis medicine at the University of Ottawa having completed his medical school at Queen's University, internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and hematology fellowship at the Ottawa Hospital. Yan's research interests include the use of routine clinical data to better understand the safety of anticoagulant therapy and how to optimally manage bleeding complications that arise from their use. His work has been supported by the Canadian Institute of Health Research, the American Society of Hematology, and the CanVector Network. Dr. Zhu, thank you for participating in our podcast today. Thank you very much, uh, Jamil and David, for having me today. It's great to see you uh, see you in person, and uh, I'd like to start today by asking you to provide our listeners with a brief overview of the study. Absolutely. So, in this study of over two thousand patients, we compared the three most commonly used major bleeding definition, and these comprise of DISTH, BARC, and the TIMI criteria that are most commonly used in clinical evaluations of anticoagulation. And the bottom line from our study is that we not only found differences in prognostic utility of these three criteria, but also that each of these criteria subcriterion or the, their composite within each definition had vastly different clinical outcomes. And they carry important clinical implications for our practitioners as well as our patients. So why did you and your colleagues feel that there was a need for this study? Absolutely. So. When we think about anticoagulation, major bleeding really is the most important adverse event. One of the most common emergency department visits in Canada among individuals over 65 years of age due to adverse drug reactions is due to oral anticoagulation. Now, based on 2013 data in Canada, anticoagulants are the drug class that is most commonly associated with emergency hospitalization among adults over 65 years of age, more than opioids, insulin, and other classes of medications, certainly at the time, and things may have changed, but it's important for us to recognize that anticoagulants are an important cause of emergency hospitalizations due to adverse drug reactions. Now, that is not to say that anticoagulants inherently are unsafe. In fact, they're extremely effective for the indications for which they're approved for. But it's also important for us to take a step back and recognize that in our conversation with our patients, the discussion about the risk of major bleeding is an important one. And underpinning that is a risk of major bleeding. So how are these major bleeding definitions defined? Well, they're a composite endpoint where fulfilling one of the sub-criteria automatically qualifies a specific event as a major bleed. And when we looked at these definitions and their sub-criteria, we really noticed that they're quite extremely heterogeneous. Some use a hemoglobin drop of 50 from the time when they come into the hospital to the time when they're assessed. Some use a cutoff of 20 grams per liter. Some use any transfusions. Others use two, grams, uh, two packed red blood cells. 
there's a whole panoply of different definitions that are being used in the literature. So we really wanted to understand the impact of the most commonly used definitions on two what we consider to be patient important outcomes, mortality and anticoagulant resumption after the hospitalization within six months. So you're talking about the different definitions uh, used for anticoagulant-associated bleeding. So if someone's reading a paper, tell us a bit about the importance about understanding which definition is used, or if someone is making a study, uh, choosing the right definition for their study. Um, you talk a bit in the paper about how uh, the importance of um, some definitions in prognosticating clinical outcomes, such as resumption of anticoagulation or mortality. Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. So let us take a step back and just talk a bit about how these definitions differ, Jamil, as you mentioned. So when we think about these three most common definitions, which is the ISTH, standing for the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis, the BARC, the Bleeding Academic Research Consortium, and the TIMI, which is the thrombolysis and myocardial infarction uh, definitions that are forming the predominant uh, definitions used in our clinical literature, there are many similarities but important differences. All three definitions have fatal bleeding as part of their criteria. So if a patient comes in and unfortunately dies from their uh, major bleeding event, that is considered a major bleed and appropriately so. Now, if you have a site of bleeding that is considered to be in a critical organ, all three definitions would consider that to be a major bleed. So if you have intracranial hemorrhage or bleeding into the brain, if you have intraocular bleeding or bleeding into the eye, these would be considered by all three definitions to be major bleeding. Now, there are specific sites that are recognized by one definition that are not in another. For example, the ISTH definition will consider things like intraspinal bleeding, intraarticular bleeding, like a bleed into the joint, or a bleed into the muscle with compartment syndrome to be a major bleed, whereas you know, the other definitions may not necessarily do that. And as we mentioned, the hemoglobin drop cutoff is quite different. For example, the TIMI definition will consider a hemoglobin drop of 50 grams per liter, which is pretty significant uh, to be a major bleed, whereas the ISTH definition, on the other hand, will consider a hemoglobin drop of 20 to be significant. And there are differences in terms of the transfusion cutoff for an event to be considered a major bleed as well. So for example, you know, more than two packed red blood cells will consider uh, basically qualify an event to be a major bleed under the ISTH definition, whereas under the BARC definition, any transfusion will qualify. So there are important nuances uh, when it comes to major bleeding for a clinical event to be defined as a major bleed. And, and why that does that matter? Well, in all clinical studies, the endpoints are uh, directly correlated to the, actually the risks of uh, the actual major bleeding risks that are reported in such a study. So if an adjudication committee, you know, with a, uh, a panel of experts look at a specific event, they need to make a decision as to whether that event is a major bleed or not. And these are the definitions that are used in by these panel of experts to make that judgment call. So that is why understanding these differences are crucial. So when we're looking at studies, it would be important to look at the specific definition used because what we see ISTH bleeding, as you're saying, is different from Timmy bleeding or bark bleeding. Is that accurate? Exactly. And okay. that, that is the kind of the crux of our study, which was looking at, well, we have all these different bleeding definitions. And from prior research, we know that depending on the specific definition that you use, you can come up with very different absolute numbers in terms of risk 
of major bleeding. And of course, when we think about how we have our conversation with our patients, when we have that shared decision-making conversation, it's really based on the idea that we have a shared understanding of the risks and benefits of treatments. And you know, sometimes we even use decision aids, right? We have these diagrams that tell us, well, if you were to go on an anticoagulant, you can suffer, you know, potentially this much more uh, major bleeds as, and at the trade-off of preventing this much in terms of an ischemic event, say a stroke, or in the case of atrial fibrillation or recurrent venous thromboembolism in the case of a treatment for uh, such an event. So understanding fundamentally what a major bleed is is crucial in terms of interpreting that uh, actual absolute risk difference between the studies and appropriately uh, having that conversation with patients to ensure that uh, everyone's on the same page with respect to accepting that risk. Thanks. So can you tell us a bit about how you uh, did the study? I understand you looked at data from uh, the blood AC study uh, and you use that data to assess if there was agreement between the definitions. Can you tell us a bit about that process? Absolutely. So the starting point of our study was really to start with a comprehensive chart review. And the reason for that is that the chart review really enables us to uh, take advantage of the powerful granularity of individual patient charts. And then we combine that with longitudinal and expansive availability of administrative databases. So let me explain that a bit more. We started out with screening more than 10,000 charts of patients who had come in with bleeding to identify patients who, in fact, were taking an or anticoagulant at the time of their bleed. And that came out to be about over 2,000 patients, 2002 to be exact. We then collected their clinical information, their laboratory information, as well as the treatment that had been initiated when they were in hospital. Then we took a second step, which was combining that data that we had captured of that clinical encounter for all those 2,000 patients and link them in a secure manner to provincial administrative databases. These are data that are routinely collected as part of clinical care every day in Ontario. And they're housed at a central repository called ICS, which is uh, formerly known as the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences. And that is an organization that's been tasked by the province to collect and use healthcare data for the purposes of health system analysis, evaluation, and decision support. So we performed the analysis using, by linking our chart review data to the administrative data that are housed at ICS in order to calculate things like 30-day mortality and anticoagulant resumption long after a patient had left hospital. Can, can you tell us the association you found between the specific definitions of major bleeding and the association with mortality? and also uh, the, the agreement between these definitions. Absolutely. What we found was that the ISTH and the BARC definitions had great agreement. So in about 89% of cases, they agreed on the same case as being an ISTH and a BARC bleeding and vice versa. And they provided very similar estimates with respect to 30-day mortality. And that comes out to be about 18.4% for the ISTH definition and 18.2% for the BARC definition. Now, it's important for us to, I think, to take a step back and think about really the clinical relevance of these major bleeds and to reflect perhaps on the fact that close to one in five patients who suffer a major bleed associated with an aura anticoagulant will not survive past 30 days of that event. And that is a stark number that I think underscores the fact that we need to understand and really prevent these major bleeding episodes from happening. 
Now, it doesn't mean that these patients necessarily, their cause of death is from major bleeding, but really it, they do represent a sentinel event at which you know, there needs to be thorough and close follow-up and understanding of that, perhaps that shift with respect to risk and benefit of anticoagulant therapy. When we think about TIMI bleeds though, they actually are numerically lower than the ISTH and BARC definitions at about half of those that have been identified by ISTH or BARC. So they're less in number, but are much more clinically high risk with a 30-day mortality that is about a double that of ISTH or BARC at 29.7%, about 30%. So approximately one in three patients who suffers a TIMI-defined major bleeding will not survive past 30 days from that event. So if you think about these numbers, they're stark numbers. And if, depending on the definition that you use, you can really see that they come up with different clinical consequences to a patient who suffers that event, which may not be captured unless one considers the specific definition that is being used in these clinical studies of anticoagulation. From what I remember, I think about um, three quarters of the patients were on warfarin and a quarter were on DOAX. Do you, do you have any data on if there was a difference in the case fatality, warfarin versus DOAX, or it's all, everything looked together? Yeah, so certainly uh, from one of our prior studies using this um, uh, set of databases, we did see that with respect to DOAX, there is a lower 30-day all-cause mortality as opposed to warfarin. And we think that this is multifactorial. Uh, certainly the lower uh, case distribution of intracranial hemorrhage, which we know from clinical trials is an advantage of DOAX, certainly uh, contributes to that difference in terms of all-cause mortality. And there are many other uh, potential causes as well, but certainly the different mix, uh, case mix in terms of site of bleeding um, is an important consideration and potential contributor for sure. Great. So for future studies, what would you recommend research use as a definition? Do you support the ISTH, the BARC, the TIMI, or perhaps a new definition? What would you recommend uh, going forward with future studies? What kind of definition should we be using? That is an important question, I think. You know, and before I get to that point, it's also important for us to recognize that not only do the definitions themselves lend itself to different clinical outcomes, as we just talked about, but the subcomponents within each bleeding definition is also quite heterogeneous. So for example, we talked about the fact that all three definitions, if you have intracranial hemorrhage, uh, then you know, uh, it will qualify as a major bleed event. Um, now, having an intracranial hemorrhage is associated with about 30 to you know, 35% risk of mortality at 30 days. Now in the ISTH definition, they also have, say for example, a transfusion of two um, or more packed red blood cells, which is associated with a much lower risk of death at about 13%, right? So, and, you know, with a BARC definition, any transfusion will qualify uh, a clinical event as being classified as major bleeding. So you can see that there's quite a heterogene heterogeneity when it comes to uh, even the sub-criterion within a bleeding definition that would actually qualify uh, a clinical event to be a major bleed. So, in other words, a major bleed is not the same as a major bleed is not the same as a major bleed. And I think the, the takeaway here really is that we need to understand how we prioritize these different events and how we put weight or some in some way adjust for the clinical relevance and uh, the clinical impact of these events uh, when it comes to patient 
related and patient important outcomes. Right? So is there a way for us to come up with a weighted scale at which we, you know, if a, uh, an event may be weighted less, if it's still clinically relevant, but may not be as patient important, as opposed to something that can be very debilitating, which would be you know, considered to be uh, a weighted on a, on a higher scale. So in some way, adjusting for that heterogeneity in terms of the, uh, the panoply of different sub-criteria that form the composite outcome of major bleeding, I think is crucial in order for us to uh, move forward in terms of our ongoing research so that we come up with a definition that is reflective of patient preferences and provider uh, relevance. Uh, is I think the next steps that are uh, that are crucial. Right. So you're saying a lot of our definitions right now are fairly objective clinical outcomes, but we're not really taking into account the patient experience of that bleed. Is that, is that correct? Exactly. Right. And, and I think understanding what threshold would be a, a threshold at which a patient or clinician would consider an anticoagulant associated bleed to be clinically major. Right. We, we never really sort of asked our patients or or perhaps even you know our uh, providers in general to ask the question, hey, you know, would you consider a 10% risk of mortality at 30 days from a clinical event to be major? What about 5%? What about 7%? And by understanding the provider and patient perspectives in terms of not only mortality, of course, because, you know, that is certainly very objective and important, but also morbidity and quality of life implications of a major bleed I think is important in order for us to refine our existing major bleeding definitions so that they actually align with uh, what's perceived to be important by patients and clinicians rather than just a number that we uh, sort of uh, report in our in our clinical studies. Right. Yeah, no, it's great, great thoughts. Um, so in the study, uh, it was mostly non-valvular AFib patients, age over 65 or greater, just because of the data you have to work with. If the study had included VT patients, patients of all ages, do you think the results would have been any different or do you think it'd be fairly similar to what we have? That is a, a great question, Jamil. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, we use the atrial fibrillation because that is a population with the highest rate of anticoagulant use. Um, now, one may say that VTE population is somewhat younger and there may be differences in terms of cause mortality uh, as a consequence. But I think the fundamental question still remains where we see differences in prognostic information that is being provided by different major bleeding definitions. So if you use BARC, you may come up with a different set of clinical consequences as if you were to use the ISTH or the, or the TIMI. And I think whichever instrument we choose, it has to still answer the question that applies to that population. So for example, in the VTE uh, realm, certainly you know, the increased risk of say, for example, heavy menstrual bleeding associated with certain agents um, is, is an important one for patients and providers as well. So how do we refine our bleeding definition so that is accurately captured in future clinical investigations is I think just an example of ways in which we can really try to refine our existing bleeding definitions so that they are more customized and more um, aligned perhaps one would say with patient values and preferences, as well as uh, provider relevance. Perfect. Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to add um, that we've, we've missed um, in the discussion today? I think there's just one more last thing that I'd like to add, which is, you know, this notion of clinically relevant non-major bleeding. So we 
discussed, you know, uh, briefly about, you know, things like increase in terms of heavy, heavy menstrual bleeding associated with certain, uh, with specific, uh, certain agents potentially, and in a setting of VTE. And I think, you know, that is just an example of clinically relevant non-major bleeding. And, and in our study, we did find that while it's not as associated with as high of a mortality as say, for example, major bleeding, you know, it is still associated with a 5% risk of mortality at 30 days. And about a quarter of those patients who have suffered clinically relevant non-major bleeding never resumed their anticoagulation within six months of their discharge or their hospital presentation. And really understanding the reasons for their discontinuation, whether it be impact on quality of life or others, is crucial in my opinion. And I think that is also, the, my hope is that by understanding patient perspectives and by understanding provider perspectives, we can come up with you know, a, a core outcome set of sorts. And I understand that there are ongoing efforts in this realm to, again, align our clinical definitions in our clinical evaluations that in fact are, again, patient-centric and provider relevant. Well, that's great. Um, thank you, Dr. Zhu. Um, it's great to have you here and uh, participating in our podcast. Um, and just want to thank you for, for taking part. It was great to hear you and see you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And thank you again for highlighting our research. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for listening to Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions on the podcast. If you have any recommendations for future podcasts, please send them to us at info at thrombosiscanada.ca and please subscribe so you're notified about the release of new episodes. Don't forget to check our website for education programs, clinical tools, and guides. Also, I appreciate if you'd please consider donating to Thrombosis Canada to support our ongoing efforts to reduce morbidity and mortality due to thrombosis. Have a good day.